Be in Genesis 28 this morning. Genesis 28. First book of the Bible. First few chapters of that book. Genesis 28. A little over halfway through that book, I should say. Uh, Depending on who you are and your background or whatever's going on in your life, uh, foreign territory can be either a scary place or it can be a safe place. So when I think back to August, how many Afghan Christians were forced to flee their homeland for foreign lands suddenly because the homeland became unsafe. For them, what was foreign was safer than what was home. I think for the majority of us, what is foreign is often frightening. Armies that go to foreign lands, especially us, new residents, many of us in foreign cultures, where the the culture, the customs, the ways, even at times the language are completely different. I imagine many of you know and can remember what it was for these first few months here at some point to long for home. That might be you this morning. Maybe you're new here. I would say you to take heart. There's quite a number of people around you who have made it. It will get better. I think we long for home because what is familiar to us is so much easier than what is foreign to us. It's more comfortable. When we have culture shock, it's that awareness that what everyone around us is taking for granted, whether it's language or culture or ways we are having to think constantly about, and we feel our foreignness. How often do we think of what is foreign is is bad? Until, hopefully, what is foreign becomes familiar. And it even reshapes the way that we think of what we once thought of what was familiar. Now, that's true if you're a Christian. If you've been converted, if you've gone from death to life in Jesus Christ, your old, familiar lifestyle suddenly, strangely, becomes foreign. And then what was foreign to you, the the church and even fighting against sin or new joys in the Lord, suddenly becomes familiar. If you're a Christian, it's not unusual for you to look back and to not even recognize the person that you once were at one point in your life. That's what we're going to see this morning. In Genesis 28, 10 through 22, Jacob, he's the one that's deceived his father. He's now been sent off to a foreign land but he carries the Abrahamic blessing with him. And on this journey, he encounters the Lord. And this transforms totally the way that he will begin to think about what was once all so familiar to him for the rest of his life. Look at Genesis 28. We're going to read verses 10 through 22. Jacob left 
Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning... Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Amen. Here's the main point from this text. Listen carefully. God's committed presence transforms and compels worship. God's committed presence transforms and compels worship. So we're going to see that this morning by one, God's surprising presence, and two, Jacob's surprising transformation. May the Lord write the truth of his word on our hearts this morning. Number one, God's surprising presence. That's there in verses 10 through 15. So when we come to this scene in, in Scripture, where have we been? We've just left a broken family scene. There was Isaac and Rebekah. There was Esau. There was Jacob. And now the narrator focuses us in on Jacob, his journey, the inheritor of the blessing, Jacob alone. He's left home, family. Jacob is headed north to Haran. That was an important city, a crossroads city in the ancient Near East, about 900 kilometers journey he's making. It's a long journey. He's leaving what is familiar for what is foreign. Jacob 
is becoming his own man. Why has he left home? He was forced to. His brother Esau wanted to kill him. Why did Esau want to kill him? Because Jacob deceived Isaac and took the blessing Isaac meant for Esau for himself. This blessing would have changed the entire destiny of Esau's life. And Jacob has been sent away to his homeland to find a wife. But let's be clear. Jacob is a man on the run. He's a fugitive. And he's headed for misery. Bible teacher Bruce Waltke sets this scene so helpfully. Behind Jacob lays Beersheba, where Esau waits to kill him. Ahead of him is Haran, where Laban waits to exploit him. He is situated between a death camp and a hard labor camp. Jacob is a foreigner entering a foreign life in a foreign place. But first, Jacob comes to this certain place in verse 11. The journey begins. For some reason, no hospitality was shown to Jacob to stay in a guest house. He's alone. He takes a stone. Clearly, that wasn't unusual. He lays down on it. He goes to sleep. He has the dream. It's amazing how the narrator is slowing down to give us every detail. Stone he lays his head on. We're in this night Jacob had in this place. And what did Jacob see? A ladder set up on the earth to heaven. You can think of the ladder probably more like a stairway. It is, for those of you who like rock and roll, the literal stairway to heaven. And it has the access point from heaven to earth. This is a totally foreign place to every one of us. And then verse 13, behold, the Lord stands above it. Your, your own Bible might read the Lord stood beside him. The point remains, the transcendent sovereign Lord who reigns over the earth is remarkably coming near to Jacob. And what does the sovereign Lord do? First, in verse 13, he identifies himself. He is Yahweh who by his gracious covenant entered into relationship with grandfather Abraham and father Isaac. He was and is their God. They were, they are his people. And then the Lord gives Jacob the Abrahamic promise, land, offspring, blessing. Verse 13 Land will be your land, this land. Verse 14, offspring not only as numerous as the dust, but offspring that spread all over the earth, east, west, north, south. And in you and your offspring, the families of the earth will be blessed. But what else does the Lord promise Jacob? Verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And so here's Jacob 
first night or two out on the journey, alone, but anything but alone. He has the promises. He has the, the presence of God. Here's God bringing Jacob in his dream to a foreign place, a place that can only be accessed by the initiative and the grace of God. What are we meant to see from this? What were God's people meant to learn from this? First, very clearly, Jacob does not have to deceive or manipulate God for God's revelation and God's presence. No deception, no manipulation. That's, that's how Jacob's gotten everything in his life so far. That's what was familiar to Jacob, manipulating and deceiving. But Yahweh, the Lord, is not and will not be manipulated. He acts freely in his own good pleasure. Because of this text, I want to just say a brief word on dreams. They didn't have written scripture then. We do. These were the patriarchs. These are God's chosen people through whom he was working, to whom he was speaking. Now, your faith is not built on dreams. It's built on the word of God. So whether you, or maybe a teacher you like, relies on dreams, that's not a sign of greater spirituality. When God's word is wholly sufficient, that means it's enough for your life, for your salvation, for godliness in this world, for the day of judgment. Can God use dreams? Yes. But they're not the word of God. We have the firm foundation of the word of God. And it's enough. What would have been actually really shocking in the ancient world to read this text, what would have been foreign, is that Yahweh, Israel's God, the God who revealed himself to be the creator of the heavens and earth, reveals himself to men apart from manipulation, apart from coercion. That's how the other cultures and nations heard from their gods. Jacob's life proves it. He had done everything through manipulation. But for Jacob to understand what it means to inherit the covenant promises and blessings by faith, to live by faith, Jacob has to learn weakness, dependence, trust, grace. That's a foreign life for Jacob. That's a foreign life for us. How do you relate to God? Do you think you have to coerce God or do certain things to get God to listen to you? So God's relationship, God's ongoing relationship with his people is always, always based on grace. It was for Jacob. It is for us in Jesus Christ. So if you're trusting Christ, you will have to get familiar with relating to God, not as fickle, but as constant. His love for you, his presence with you, is built on the eternally firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Let's get very practical. This means that you don't read your Bible. You don't have quiet times 
to get God to love you. You commune with, you enjoy, you know the God who will not stop loving you. You do not keep coming to church to get God to love you or stay in God's good graces. But because you freely receive the grace and the love of this good God, do you understand this? Ask yourself, uh, if you're not a Christian, do you think you have to do something to get God to love you? Christian, ask yourself whether you tend to stay away from God when you've sinned, and I mean really sinned, or you've known periods of sin in your life. You're staying away from God then, the God who who never entered into relationship with you in the first place based on your works, reveals somehow you think God stays in the relationship somehow based on your works. For you, Christian, when things are good, when things are are bad, if you're in Christ, God's love for you is always, always based in and on Christ's work, not your works. That is so easy to shake your head yes and nod to. That is so hard for every one of us to deeply internalize and live. It takes supernatural grace to accept God's grace and to live in the freedom of the grace of God. And living by grace is so foreign to us who live and are familiar with a world in which everything is based on works. It was to Jacob. Here's God graciously entering into relationship with Jacob, not because of works, but by grace. Second, Yahweh the Lord is not a local deity. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Yahweh is not limited to a place or even one people. The God who created the heavens and the earth is binding himself to our particular people here to this one man. and He's going to be present with him in every place. And with his presence comes his power to achieve what Yahweh the Lord has purposed for this man. Notice the angels. Isn't there so much more we'd love to know about angels in this universe? We're given glimpses into the angelic realm. We know that they protect God's people. We know that they communicate God's word to God's people. We know they even rescue God's people. Here they're present The transcendent Lord is coming near to to Jacob. So somehow the Lord's presence and protection will be carried out by the Lord's angels. The Lord establishes presence wherever he will. He's not a local deity. He does not have local plans. Here the promises given escalate. They intensify with Jacob. Verse 14, offspring like the dust of the earth, they're spreading all over the world. Now, don't let your familiarity with this cause you to lose your sense of shock. Jacob is alone. He's not married. Once again, the promise comes and he doesn't have any children. And his brother wants him dead. And God says, more offspring than you can fathom. 
and the offspring's presence and significance will be global in God's presence. Now, this is where I think familiarity for us causes us to be not appropriately shocked. The Lord promises to be with this man. It's the first time in the scriptures that the Lord has made this promise in this way. To this point, all the promises that the Lord has graciously given to Abraham and to Isaac are all far off in the future when they're gone. Not this one. The Lord promises to go with this man where he goes and not to leave. This man who's just deceived his blind father, who's fleeing from home. Who was Jacob? Remember, he's the homebody. He loved life that was familiar. He's forced out. And God promises his presence to this man. As the scriptures progress, God goes with his people in the cloud, in the tabernacle. His presence is manifested in glory in the temple, ultimately in Jesus Christ, and then remarkably in the spirit. In every single one of God's blood-bought people. This is the very beginning of something that the whole Bible is going to build on. I remember when I was growing up, how much I loved when my whole family was together and being in the same room together, maybe watching a movie or TV. And I especially remember at night when I occasionally was afraid, occasionally was afraid to leave the room and go to maybe my room or another room in the house where it was dark and no one was. It was unknown. I'd be all alone. But every bit of that changed if my dad would go with me. Suddenly what was dangerous and foreign and and frightening was not that if dad was there. On a far, far greater scale, this is what life is like for you as a Christian in God's world. This is what life in God's world is like for us as a church. Foreign lands are not foreign to our God. Dark nights, not dangerous to our God. Hard circumstances, not hard for our God. What does Jacob have to fear now that God has promised to be with him? What do you have to fear now that God promises in Christ to be with you? I hope if you're trusting Christ, you will take the time in your life to look backward and to see how God has been with you. To do this as a church, how God has been with us. Do you remember when you feared something? Maybe when it was when you moved here or somewhere else, or you walked into a new circumstance. Did God not prove to be faithful? As you look back, God was possibly doing more than you could possibly know in that season. It's good to take stock to remember. It's good to bring that to mind. It strengthens our faith as we look forward and remember how God dealt with us so kindly in the past. God is doing for Jacob. He's going to do for all his people in Christ. So because the Lord 
is with his people, we trust him in foreign places and foreign circumstances. God gave the guarantee of his presence to Jacob in a very vivid dream. We have the fullness of God's word. We have the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. What tempts you to think God would ever abandon you? What is that? Whatever that is has become bigger to you than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not judge God by your circumstances. Always look first at the cross and the resurrection, God's character, who he is in his word, and then see your circumstances through that lens. Now also, as it was with Jacob, so for us, God's presence does not mean there will not be great hardship. Jacob is headed for suffering and misery. Years of it. But he goes with God's presence. It's God's presence that makes suffering redound to our good. So by his presence, God does more in our suffering or persecution in us and for us than we could ever do for ourselves. So suffering and confusion and persecution are not the sign of God's absence. Go through these in Christ, just as Jacob, assured that the covenant Lord goes with you. How much more is this true for us who are in Christ on this side of the cross and the resurrection? The one who stands in heaven for us even now knows what it is to suffer. God wonderfully goes with his people to foreign lands and into the foreignness of suffering and persecution to beautifully pry our hearts away from sin and from this world that is all too familiar to us. Finally, notice that in God's world, we do not work our way up to God. Our only hope is that God will come to us. The last time we encountered in Genesis a great stairway to heaven was in Babel, when all humanity in its pride determined to build a tower to the heavens, to build a world without God. And here this stairway is God's doing. How good is God? God comes to Jacob. To be with Jacob. And it's God who says in verse 13, I promise to give you this land on which you lie. Now, if you're not a Christian, you should wrestle with the reality that access to God is always on God's terms. It's always God's doing. Notice Jacob is asleep. I think God's who make us work to earn their love and commitment... That's all too familiar to us. What is foreign is what we find in the Bible. The God who works and in his son will complete the works to secure relationship with us. So to know the true God, you must be willing to part with what is naturally familiar to you. God's presence is surprising. He initiates it in a foreign place to a man who's done nothing to deserve it. 
always, always, God's kind presence is a shocking display of grace. God's surprising presence. And then let's see Jacob's surprising transformation. Jacob's surprising transformation, verses 16 through 22. The Lord, Yahweh, has spoken, and now Jacob speaks. He wakes up in verse 16, and the place is transformed. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. What's changed? Well, first, obviously, the night is ending. Day is breaking in. Sunset is giving way to to sunrise. That's not all. Jacob sees differently. Now, he knows the Lord is there. The dream has transformed the way he sees reality. The place has the presence of the Lord. The place is awesome. The place is God's house, the gate of heaven. But verse 17, Jacob is afraid. Why? In a profound way, he is aware of who he is and who God is. God's presence can be terrifying in this all too familiar wicked world. God's presence is awesome, full of awe. Reverential fear is appropriate in the presence of God. I think one of the realities of life in this fallen world is that we fear what we should not fear, and we don't fear what we should fear. God rests lightly on this world, even ignored And when we see that through the lens of of Scripture, we learn that in Christ we don't have to fear the, the future, we don't have to fear the principalities and the powers, we don't even have to fear death. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What has Jacob feared in Genesis? Getting caught in that deceitful scheme and receiving a curse instead of a blessing? Now Jacob in a foreign land, away from family for the first time. He's knowing the fear of the Lord. How kind is the Lord? Now why this term gate of heaven? The word Babylon, it's in Genesis 11, was understood by the ancient peoples to come from a word that meant gate of God. But the gate or the access to God does not come from man. It comes from God. God's giving Jacob the access. Heaven is meeting earth at this point. This is the gate. So what does Jacob do? In verse 18, he memorializes the place. The next morning, that stone that was a pillow now becomes a pillar. He anoints it with oil. It was not uncommon, as I read about this, for the Canaanites in the ancient Near East to set up pillars for their own gods And they even believed that those pillars were places where their spirits could dwell. Here's Jacob setting up a pillar to mark God's revelation and commitment to Jacob. And he calls the place Bethel. As Mark said, the house of God. Bait, house, L of God. This is God's house. But, did you notice, we actually only hear 
learned that that place actually had a name, a city called Luz. And then verse 20, Jacob makes a vow. This is the longest vow in the entire Old Testament. God will keep me, give me bread, clothing, bring me back to my father's house. Then the Lord shall be my God. A little different with God, Abraham and Isaac. God gives them conditions. Here's Jacob seemingly putting conditions on God. But this was a vow appropriate for Jacob to make. It, it does kind of sound like his faith is not firm. It's like he's a negotiating with God. But I'd say what's happening here is that the faith he had seen imperfectly in his parents is now becoming his own. We're starting to see the transformation of Jacob. And he vows to worship, to build God a house, and even to tithe to the Lord. Now, remember, this happened early on in God's work in the world. God would continue to establish ways that were appropriate to worship him. It would be wrong to think that because Jacob as a patriarch responded in worship by making a vow that somehow we should make vows or be expected to do so. In the Old Covenant, vows were appropriate in different contexts and ways, but we don't see them as ways to worship God in the New Covenant. Clearly, Jacob's life is transformed. He is turning from familiar old ways to new ones. What do we learn from Jacob here? First, transformation is seen in transformed worship. The order matters. God reveals, God speaks, God commits himself. Jacob responds in worship. He sets up the pillar, he vows. He offers what is valuable after God himself has committed himself. Jacob does not worship to get God's attention. He worships because God has given him his attention. When we worship, it's always in response to God's gracious initiative. You know, that's why we actually begin every public worship with the call to worship. God's word goes forward first. In our worship form, we're teaching. Structures matter. God gets the first word in worship. He summons us. We respond to his gracious call. In our world, and you know this, we flatter to get. But what's so foreign to us is the gospel. Where God works, he moves first. So in corporate worship, in offering up your life, it's a response never to get what you don't have but because you've been given what you never could have had. I want to be clear about God's presence. Apart from grace, apart from Christ, God's presence is terrifying. But when a sinner knows God's grace in Christ, his presence is the most safe place in the world. Nothing can terrify us. God's presence will result in worship in our lives. Let's see more of Jacob's transformation. Jacob's gone from someone who is only taking to someone who's now giving. He was self-absorbed in the way he was relating to the world, and now he's becoming Godward in his orientation. And he makes this lengthy vow. His life now will engage in costly worship to God. This is not the Jacob we knew. 
This is a Jacob who's foreign to himself, even from the night before. It's not just Jacob that's transformed, it's the place. It went from the place that the narrator doesn't even name, the worldly city Luz, to Bethel. The stone goes from being a pillow to a pillar. Luz actually was a major Canaanite city. But the narrator tells us Jacob is in Luz only after it's been renamed Bethel. For three verses, he just called it a place. It was such an important city in this world. But it doesn't take on its true significance until the Lord identifies himself and comes to it. Its only lasting significance comes from God and not whatever Luz had built. So now this ordinary, nameless place takes on extraordinary significance. Bethel, God's house. And the stone, which was forgettable, it becomes a pillar in God's house. It's not human achievement that has brought this place significance. But the gracious revelation presence of God. God's presence transforms the person and the place. So what we see is transformation. Jacob, in his worship, pledges this tithe. He will give and sacrifice to the Lord instead of manipulating others. Jacob is a man who no longer lives with himself. Slowly, first in sight, he sees differently. Now what about us? Where are you seeking your significance Luz was a great city in the economy of this world. It was a no-name place in the economy of God. When we together try to be relevant on the world's terms, we lose our prophetic witness. We can't offer the world worldly stuff better than the world offers it. What we offer the world in Christ is the mysteries of heaven. We, we can offer the world a community that is compelling because of Jesus Christ. And we can offer the world a salvation that is too good to be true, but actually is. Jacob is transformed. He's, he's seen. He, he knows God. So, for the world's sake, we love the world best when we listen to God and we offer the world what it's not familiar with. Our triune God who comes near in Christ. Luz becomes Bethel transformed by the God who was foreign to that city. This is the small beginnings of what God will do all over the world. We hold out this God to the world. And then next, Bethel, the gate of God, God's house, points us to Jesus Christ. Why? Because in that dark night, by God's grace and his initiative, this was the place where God and man met. Jacob, the deceiver, alone on the run, God finds him. Here in seed form is the glorious good news that will come to light in Jesus Christ. This is the anti-Babel, where man in all of his pride thought that he could by his own strength get to heaven. Here God comes providing the path from earth to heaven. He created the stairway. He created the angels who attended to it. But ultimately, God will not reveal a path or a stairway. He will come and enter his presence 
in Christ at the cross. God came in a dream. God will ultimately come in a person. This God would mysteriously, remarkably come into our world and take on flesh and walk among us. How will sinners come into the presence of this God? God himself, by his son, would leave not just home, but heaven. All the familiar glories that were rightly given to him, he comes into the foreignness of a sinful world. Remarkably, Jesus Christ would not seek to flee those who were trying to kill him. He would set his face to go to the cross to be killed for sinners. The sin that destroyed us, the sin that makes God's presence terrifying. Jesus Christ took that upon himself on that dark day at the cross. And do you realize that what Jacob was promised, the presence of God, Jesus willingly forfeited when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ is the access point. He brings us to God. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. God has come into the world and set the terms graciously of salvation, and he's fulfilled them in Christ. Don't try to be creative. Come to Christ in your own way. And Christ has opened wide the door of heaven in Christ. On the cross, and then an empty tomb. Trust him. Leave what is familiar to you, sin and self-trust, and come to the God who is wonderfully foreign, who will free you and give you himself. I hope you'll wrestle with that, if that's news to you, foreign news to you. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus in that way. As we leave this text, I do want you to consider Christian if you thought lightly of God's presence with you by his Spirit. Are you living below your privileges to commune with the living God? Has the fact that Jesus Christ has gone into the most holy place to give you access there become too familiar to you? Those are bedrock realities that transform the way that we see. Ask yourself if you're slipping back into relating to God by works. Do you know that leaving the treadmill of works requires supernatural grace? Ask God for such grace. God's covenantal presence transforms Jacob, transforms his worship. He's a man in a foreign land, but now he's confident that Yahweh is with him. The cross and the resurrection give us the same confidence. And so it's because of that that we can hold to the triune God. We can hold out the triune God and his scandalous grace to the world. Jacob named this one place Bethel, God's house. But ultimately, Bethel, God's house, will be the whole world. He will dwell with us and we with him in Christ. In Christ, God sustains us and he empowers us in this foreign world until, like with Jacob, God makes good on every one of his promises to bring us safely home.